And it's lights out from another episode of the Breaking the Chain podcast, where we will discuss everything from the Belgium Grand Prix. Here are some news stories off the track that have caught my eye over the past two weeks. All 10 teams have signed the Concord Agreement and have committed to racing in Formula 1 until 2025. The Concord Agreement is an agreement between Formula 1, the FIA and the teams which wish to compete in the World Championship. The agreement is a commercial document which defines how F1's TV revenues and prize money will be distributed. It was also announced that Williams have been sold to US-based investment firm Doralton Capital. The good thing is that the team will still keep the Williams name and they will still be based and operate out of Grove, Oxfordshire in the UK. This is particularly good news as they are technically my local team as I lived near Grove until I moved out to Australia. This is not the first time an F1 team had to be bought to keep it afloat as in 2008 Ross Braun bought Honda for £1 and with that he also bought the $200 million US dollars in debt. Now I think we can all remember how Braun GP was able to rise up from the ashes of Honda and win both world championships with Jensen Button and Rubens Barrichello at the wheel and the clever innovation that was the double diffuser. More recently Lotus was sold back to Renault in 2015 for again £1 as the team was originally Renault before they sold it in 2009. From 1997 to 2001 four-time world champion Alain Prost started his own team called Prost Grand Prix. Prost Grand Prix was originally Ligier who raced from 1976 to 1996. The point I'm trying to make here is that you have teams like Williams, Ferrari and even Braun to some extent and sometimes even the best people in the sport cannot get a team to work. Look at Ligier for example, they were in the sport for 30 years and then were sold because they ran out of money. It just shows that F1 is a very unforgiving sport and doesn't care if you've been in the sport for 30 years or 70 years. Let's hear what Deputy Team Principal Claire Williams had to say about the sale of her family team. We needed to find investment into this team in order to secure its future and to make sure that it was going to be successful. And it's exactly what we've managed to achieve with this review. We found some new brilliant owners for this business who are or this team who are incredibly passionate about Formula One, about seeing Williams return back to the front of the grid. They've got the financial power in order to take it there. And this is a good day for Williams. Yes, it's a new dawn, it's a new era. Williams family no longer own it, but we've always done the right thing by this team. That's to look after our people and to make sure this team is successful. And that's exactly what we've done through this sale. There've been sort of two rumors, one saying that um, you've been offered the chance to stay and you're thinking about it, and the other one saying that um, you want to stay and you're trying to persuade them to let you stay. What's the truth? Are you staying with the team? Oh, I love a rumor in Formula One, don't you? Um, uh, The the situation at the moment is status quo. You know, this has all happened, I think, as we know, very quickly. Um, I'm here this weekend in my original capacity as deputy team principal. I'm running the team this weekend, and I'm looking forward to be honest with you about just focusing on the racing because having been so absorbed in this process that is so all-consuming, it's going to be nice just to do my job, and that's running this race team this weekend and, and focus on that in the here and now, and then we will see where the future takes us. You know, as much as this is a change, 
change. And I understand, you know, that perspective from our fans. It would be disappointing to see, you know, the Williams family not owning the team anymore. This is good for our team. This is good for the people in it. This is good for the name. The name is going to stay in it. You're still going to see Williams cars racing around the racetrack and hopefully they're going to be a lot further forward once this level of investment comes in and we can drive performance and we can make Williams great again. Now for a change of pace. The 2020 calendar has been finalised with the Turkish Grand Prix at Istanbul Park and the infamous 4 Apex turn eight making a return as well as two races in Bahrain with one using the traditional Grand Prix circuit and the Sake Grand Prix using the outer circuit which will see lap times well under a minute and the race will be held later at night before the finale round in Abu Dhabi. It will be interesting to see how the current F1 cars do at a track like Istanbul and that infamous turn eight as the last time we raced in Turkey was in 2013. Now it wouldn't be F1 in 2020 if there wasn't some mention of Racing Point's brake ducts. It was a shock to hear that Renault have made the decision to pull out of the Racing Point appeal on the rear brake ducts, even though they were the ones who started the protest in the first place. But I'm sure I'll have an update on this ongoing saga in my next podcast. After all, it's just too exciting a story not to. This weekend also marked one year since the tragic death of Antoine Hubert who died in a horrific accident in the F2 feature race last year. Pierre Gasly, a longtime friend of Antoine, laid flowers on the track where the crash happened and all the F1 cars carried an AH19 logo this weekend. Now on to On This Day in F1 History and slightly happier memories than Hubert's awful accident. Although the championship began in 1950, Grand Prix racing had been developing at a pace after racing resumed after World War II. The consensus among racing fans is that the first race to run F1 rules was on the streets of Turin on this day in 1946, which Archie Varzi won in his works Alfa Romeo. I bet the Alfa Romeo team of today would love to be winning races rather than be stuck at the back of the grid fighting for the occasional points finish. Anyway, that's enough news and history for one week. Let's get bang up to date with the race weekend itself. Haas had problems in FP1 with Roman Grosjean not having any power from his Ferrari power unit. Unfortunately for Haas, they had to change the internal combustion engine ICE for short on both cars and what was even more annoying for the team was that the problems were different on both sides of the garage. Because of this they got no running in FP1. Daniel Ricciardo's car also had a loss of hydraulic pressure in the closing stages of FP2. As we will see later the problem didn't resurface in the race. During FP3 the Sky F1 commentary team were talking to Red Bull team principal Christian Horner when he said it was slightly depressing as Mercedes was so fast in qualifying in Spain, but they didn't use any qualifying modes. It just goes to show how much better Mercedes are that even without their party mode enabled, they can still stomp all over the competition in qualifying. As I stated last time, there may not even be such a thing as a party mode, and it may just be the Mercedes team trying to get a psychological advantage over their competitors and to get inside their heads. Ferrari were a massive talking point all weekend as they were near the back of the field in FP1 and FP2 but in FP3 it took another level of low as they were slowest. Yes, former world champion Sebastian Vettel was slowest. 
considering how well they've gone at Belgium, not just last year, but in the past as well. It is sad to see a team like Ferrari who have so much history and heritage in the sport so far down the order. And now on to qualifying. In the build-up to qualifying, there was an interview with the team principal of Ferrari, Mattia Benotto, and he was asked about the Racing Point appeal. Really? This is the story that just keeps on giving. He said that the team are looking for transparency and clarity. And yet, when asked about the secret settlement with the FIA last year on the Ferrari Power Unit, and why the fans and the media have not been told about what happened, he said the situations were completely different. I personally think this was quite hypocritical given that Ferrari have not been transparent about their engine from last year. If they were not breaking the rules, then they would have not had to change it. But they did, and as a result, they are about 50 horsepower down compared to last year, which is costing them in terms of grid position and points. In the break between Q1 and Q2, the Sky Sports team had a look at Charles's pole lap from last year, and we found that there was no comparison between this year's car and last year's car. As last year, Ferrari led every single practice session, locked up the front row, and won the race. Whereas this year, they were not even able to make it into Q3 with Charles qualifying 13th and Sebastian 14th on the grid. Daniel Ricciardo had a break by wire, BBW for short, issue at the end of Q2. The break by wire system is where the brakes are controlled by electronic means rather than physical cables slash connections. And because of the battery harvesting on these hybrid power units, they use the BBW to harvest the energy under braking. Luckily, Renault were able to get it fixed and he was able to get out in Q3 and qualify an impressive fourth on the grid. And now, after all that, finally to the race itself. Carlos Sainz in the McLaren did not even make the start of the race as he had an exhaust failure. On his second lap on the way to the grid, a small fire started in the power unit which caused it to go pop. Out of respect for Antoine Hubert, who tragically lost his life at Spa a year ago, there was a minute of silence for him. This was a really nice touch by the whole of the F1 community, as it just shows how much Antoine meant to everyone who knew him. The race start was clean for everyone, with the Mercedes pair of Hamilton and Bottas stretching their legs. On lap 10 of the Grand Prix, there was a massive crash for Antonio Giovinazzi in the Alfa Romeo on the exit of Turn 14. He just dropped it on the exit and hit the wall and then his wrecked car came back onto the track. The most annoying thing about this was that George Russell in the Williams had to take avoiding action from the Alpha, and the Williams driver ended up getting hit by one of the front tyres from Giovinazzi's car, and he too was out of the race. This crash brought out the safety car as there were lots of debris on the track. During this safety car period, lots of cars peeled into the pits for an early and cheap pit stop, and one of those drivers was Charles Leclerc in the Ferrari. The pit stop took a while as the team were not ready with the tyres. When this happened, I got Monaco 2016 vibes, as the same thing happened to Daniel Ricciardo in the Red Bull. But the difference here was that Charles was not fighting for the win, whereas Daniel in the Red Bull was. After that, the Belgian Grand Prix was effectively another Lewis Hamilton rating masterclass with him winning the race for Mercedes. It wasn't really like not focused really mistakes. It was just a yeah, small lockup, um, which ends up being 
longer because you have to come off the pe pedal to stop the lockup. So then you go, you you, you run uh, wide. So I had that uh, the last corner, and I had a small little nip into uh, turn five, which wasn't really, actually, really wasn't a problem. Um, so otherwise, it was pretty good. I think I don't know if, how people feel about the uh, the start and the restart, but those two are really really stressful. Um, when you're in the lead, you're the one that controls the pace. And being able to like catch the guy behind sleeping on the restart is not easy. Um, but I managed to get a good gap from him, and and then he had a huge toe. Uh, luckily, he you know I had a big enough gap to him going into uh, a rouge that he wasn't able to catch at the straight. The start was horrible <laughs> because it doesn't matter how good your start is off the grid. When you come around turn one, there are car lengths behind you, and then they tow and slipstream you off into turn five. But I managed just to balance it just right. Um, out of the, out of turn one, keeping right, uh, and he ended up being really close to me. And I think I don't know if maybe he lifted or something like that. Uh, um, but yeah, this is really uh, just remarkable what the team is doing and what we're doing together. We're continuing to really push the envelope, um, push the technology to to the maximum, and uh, and it feels great to to really finish on a high this weekend. Particularly as I said yesterday with with Chad dying, I really. Um, really wanted to deliver because, you know, he made everyone feel like a superhero, so, um, yeah. With Valtteri Bottas coming home in second, making it a 1-2 for the team. Uh, yes, uh, obviously, you know, with the, how you manage the energy, there's different kind of options. Um, I think I must have not heard it or something that we can't use it against each other, but anyway, uh, fair enough. Um, I don't know, that really... You know, I was a bit disappointed with the with the lack of toe effect today into turn five. I was really expecting to be a big difference being in the in the toe and like in the safety car restart exiting turn one. I was sure that I'm going to get him up the hill, but I just couldn't catch him on the straight. So I think those were the only opportunities today, and uh, there was no other way. So then, are you then just sitting in second and managing tyres and managing your position for the rest of the race? Is that all you could do? It's, uh, it's it's tough here to follow in sector two, and always when you're behind, you destroy your tires. Um, I think both me and Lewis were pretty critical towards the end of the race with the front tires. Uh, again, getting the vibration like we got in Silverstone before the failure, but I'm glad we could make it to then. And with Max Verstappen coming home in third and rounding out the podium for Red Bull. Well, it was not really a fight, you know. I was just trying to do my own race because um, quite quickly I could see I could not really follow them. And, um, yeah, I tried to put a bit of pressure on Valtteri on the hard tire, but then at one point they told him to speed up and that was it. Then they pulled away again. Then also I, I started to have a lot of vibrations and understeer, so I decided to just back it out and uh, bring it to the finish. Yeah, it was not ideal, but, uh, yeah, it's what it is. But can you comment the fight against your ex-teammate uh, Daniel at the beginning of uh, the race? How was it? Yeah, we gave each other space, so it was all good. Yeah, it was... Uh, but funny. Yeah. I mean, positive side. Was it? I don't know, not for me, but yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay, you know, you just pay attention to each other and then you just go. Can you be satisfied about your weekend, Max? No, I think overall we had a good weekend. Yeah, just uh, today um, it was a bit boring just because we couldn't push on the tyres. They just dropped off really quick. Perhaps most significant was Daniel Ricciardo's fourth place. Real progress for Renault and great news for a certain hairstylist, I know. I hope they can build on this and make even more progress during the rest of the season.
will be in Italy next week and the Italian Grand Prix is always a great race and is nicknamed the Temple of Speed for a reason. I know this was a long time ago and will seem like even longer for Vettel in his woeful Ferrari at the moment, but I think we can all remember Sebastian Vettel's stunning victory at a rain-soaked Monza in the Toro Rosso in 2008. Let's hope Monza can produce an exciting race with lots of slipstreaming and overtaking. And so we've reached the checkers like I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Arrivederci and I'll see you in Italy.